It's an exciting week because we're talking so much about the family, and I, I just have to be honest, it is for me an amazing thought to think about the family unit. And so what I want to do to help kind of get our minds there is I just want you to uh, kind of step back and I want you to think about something. God has instituted the church. God has instituted government. God has built institutions into our lives that he's given to help us. But before the fall of man, before sin entered man's heart, God instituted the family and said, it is good. That, that ought to be something in our minds to think that God has instituted this family and declared it good before the fall. All those other institutions have been after the fall. This one before. That's an amazing thought to us this morning. It ought to make us feel blessed to be part of a family. We know from our New Testament that that family that begins with the husband and the wife is so incredibly special because its mystery is that it proclaims the gospel. It, it proclaims the relationship between Christ and his church. Now think about that for just a moment. Before there was sin... In the heart of a man, God set up a picture of the gospel when he instituted the first marriage between Adam and Eve. That's an incredible thing when we get to think about our family. How we find belonging and how we find comfort and how we find discipleship and how we find nurture and support all in the context of family. That's an incredible blessing. And so I'm super excited that we have all these things going on this week as a church, and most of them are just fun. Some of them are commissioning and holding up and celebrating. Some of them are equipping. Uh, a lot of it's just food and inflatables, and those things are good, and I can't wait, you know, to, I, I don't know who I'm going to get in an inflatable, probably Pastor Gene, but I'm going to get them in, get them bouncing around in an inflatable. It's going to be great. We're going to have a good time. I'm excited about all that stuff. The thing I am most excited about specific to our church when it comes to the context of the family, though, is the family discipleship plan. I cannot tell you. I could spend the next hour just telling you story after story of how God is using it to change lives. And not just of kids, but of families. It's an incredible thought to see how these things are coming together in the context of the family unit. And if you just back away from it and you realize that there is nothing more predicting to the culture of a nation, to the well-being of a nation than the individual family units, you understand its importance. See, we like to point our finger and we like to blame institutions like it's the government or it's this or it's that, but the truth is it is the influence of the collection of those individual family units across a country, across a people that sets its culture, that sets its direction and is the most influential thing to guide them in the home, in that institution of the family. And probably the only thing more damaging than that thought, that broken family, is the pride that is in us that when I say that, you agree, but immediately think of other people's families. 
See, because when we talk about our own family, there is nothing that makes us more competitive, more defensive, bows us up more, and like, come on, right? Don't talk about my family. I'll be honest, even as a pastor who is set apart, sent, given authority by God's word to disciple, to proclaim truth, you know when I get really nervous is when I have to get in somebody's family business, especially when it's just good, sound wisdom, but it's a practical application of an absolute truth, but not just an absolute truth, and there's wisdom to be spoken there, but it's not like I can take them to a Bible verse and say, listen, this is just incredibly unwise, because I know there's nothing that makes people bow up more, get more defensive than when you begin to talk about their family unit. That's an example of our pride that's in us. I'm the same way the same way. The family discipleship plan in a very just simple and yet deep way is helping our people in an encouraging and an edifying way begin to intentionally disciple in their home, to overcome some of that defensiveness, to overcome some of those hurdles. And many, for the very first time in their life with their children, have an intentional week over week year over year, plan to disciple their kids. It's an incredible thought. It's a great blessing for us. And see, if we think about it from an educational standpoint, it just makes sense. Because I want you to know something. Our family discipleship plan, it's just a tool. It has weaknesses. It's just a resource. If you're here as a parent, and you are intentionally, diligently discipling your child, and you have a plan, and it builds with them. You're not just reacting. You've got something set up. You've got something that works. I want to encourage you, and I want you to know that your elders, your pastors are behind you. They support you, and they are thankful that you are taking such a role in the life of your children. But if you're here and you don't have that, my hope this morning is that you will begin to see there is an advantage to a diligent discipleship plan for your kids that can come alongside of your church, and that the family discipleship plan might be something that you could indeed start and use to disciple your kids. Because let's just be honest, you would never send your child to learn any subject, you would never send them to school where there was no plan week over week, year over year, where you drop them off at that school and their response is, yeah, we're just going to wing it this week. You would never do that. And so as a church, let's purpose our hearts not to cheat our kids out of discipleship that is intentional and that is diligent. Our kids are worth it. The next generation is worth it. And so this morning as we kick off family week, I want to do something a little different. As we continue to preach through the book of Acts and specifically chapter 3 this morning, we're going to use the format of the family discipleship plan. I want you to be familiar with it. I want you to see the terms. I want you to see how it works. I want you to see that it's really easy and really simple. I also want you to see that it's, it's depth and what it can be and how it can give you more if you'd like more. And so that's kind of our plan this morning. If you'll notice, the notes will look a little different. And if you have your app, I'd encourage you to download the notes. You can get them online at the news section. Again, all of that is laid out to mimic, identi- uh, to identically mimic, is that a good way to say it? Sure. <laughs> to mimic 
the overview of a family discipleship weekly guide or devotion. So you can find that on your app or online. So the family discipleship plan for us breaks down into four sections, each with its own really big focus that spans years. First, we look at preschool. Preschool. And in preschool, we want to instill what we call foundations. There's 16 foundational statements that are based on the, just the incredibly powerful truth that God is and God gives. Everything relates back to the Creator. And so we instill those doctrines and those truths at a very young age, and year over year we work through those foundations in preschool. Through elementary, we focus on the story, which is the gospel narrative that weaves its way through all of Scripture. We talk about creation. We talk about the fall. We talk about redemption. And we talk about the new creation that is promised. And we tell the story of the gospel throughout the pages of Scripture. When we move to middle school, we focus on identity. Who we are in Jesus. All of our value, all of our worth, all of our identity goes back to the Creator. And we take that season of life that we know, we begin to rationalize and for the first time really think, how do I fit into this world? And we talk about identity in Christ and that becomes our focus. In high school, we begin to realize, you know what? There is a plan for my life. I am not a random event. I am not set outside of purpose. But God has set me up to have an influence. And we begin to talk about the influence that we are called and commissioned to have through Jesus. And so these are the, the big focuses, if you will. And so if you've been coming here on Sunday morning, you know that as a church in our worship gathering this year, we have a focus. It's been the church. We're studying the church. We're preaching and reading and studying through the book of Acts. And this morning, specifically, we will be in chapter 3. The previous weeks, we've covered chapters 1 through one and 2. I get a whole chapter this morning. Like I, I'm going to tease Mike. It, it took him like you know weeks to get through 1 and 2. I can get a whole chapter in one morning, right? So chapter 3 this morning. But before we really dive into the depth and all that, that is in the fullness of chapter 3, I want to just kind of back out and I want to give you the simple overview through the family discipleship plan. I want you to know it's an easy thing to start. That if you just had five or ten minutes a week, you can really begin to dive in to the family discipleship plan. It'll give you a conversation starter. It'll give you something to meditate on, something to talk about within the context of your family. And so when we look at the family discipleship plan, the first thing that should jump out to you is that every week there is a big truth. A big truth. The big truth is the main point. It's the main point for that week. It's a weekly source of meditation, a weekly source of conversation for your family. It's a big truth. So for us, as we study through Acts chapter 3, our big truth this morning is Jesus is the Christ. Christ literally means anointed. And when we say Jesus Christ, listen, that's not his last name. It's not Daniel Broyles. It's his title. What we're saying is Jesus is the anointed one. He is the one who has been promised. He is the one who will be king. He is our saving king. And so the implication is that Jesus is the one sent 
and qualified to save and to reign. He is the anointed one. Jesus is the Christ. That's the big truth this week. And so it's important to remember that as we recognize the big, the big truth, we don't get to make up a big truth. As a church, we just don't get to do that. The big truth is always prescribed in Scripture. And so every time you look at the family discipleship plan, you look at that week, you're going to see a big truth. Right next to it, you're going to see a Bible verse. A Bible verse. Because the Bible must clearly prescribe that truth. We don't get to make them up. They come directly from Scripture. So for us, this week, as we recognize there's a Bible verse there, by the way, our Bible verses in the FTP, a great resource for weekly memorization. Our Bible verse this morning comes from Matthew 16, 16. And some of you think I've already lost my mind. You thought you said you were in Acts 3. We are. The Bible verse is something that is prescriptive. And oftentimes those Bible verses find themselves, many of them in Scripture, prescribing that same big truth. And in Acts chapter 16, Peter is asked an important question by Jesus. And in Acts chapter 3... Peter is also the same person that is going to preach a sermon. So we got the same guy, just a little bit different time. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? That's kind of an intimidating question. I mean, if Jesus looked at you and says, who do you say that I am? I mean, that's a little intimidating. And Peter replies, you are the Christ the anointed one, right? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In verse 17, Jesus goes on and explains, you didn't just come up with that by yourself, Peter. That wasn't revealed to you by your own mental, cognitive thinking. It came from the Father. This revelation that I am the Christ, it came from God. So what you have here is this proclamation, this truth, Jesus is the Christ, made by Peter. You have that same proclamation affirmed by Jesus, saying it's from God. So our big truth this morning, that Jesus is the Christ, isn't something we just made up. It is prescribed for us and given to us in the revelation of God in his scripture. And so right there, if that's as far as you get in a family discipleship plan, and looking at a God one week, or looking at a devotion, You already have a big truth that you can begin to talk to your kids about that week. A Bible verse you can help them memorize and help engage around them. You can ask them, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ? What does that mean for you? And so if you just had five minutes to glance at it, you're already rolling. And that's an easy place to start. But we want to also provide a little more. And so when you read a little further, you're going to come to something called big ideas. Big ideas. Now, the big ideas support and more fully develop the same big truth. It doesn't add a new truth. It just helps support the same one. Let me give you an example. I say to my daughter, here's the definition of gravity. And I give her a definition of gravity. She's like, oh, okay. And then I say, let me give you a big idea. You jump off the roof, you fall, you go splat. I get it, right? So that's not a new truth. It's the same explanation of gravity. It just helps 
understand the implication, the reality, the truth of what that is. Because as we walk through with our children, we understand developmentally, they're not all at the same point of rationalization. They don't have the same experience. They may not have the same lens. And so those big ideas help us communicate, help us understand the proper meaning of that big truth. And so this morning as a church, we have three of those that we're going to see in Acts chapter 3. Jesus is our source of authority. Second, Jesus suffered to be our Savior. Third, Jesus gives healing through saving faith and repentance. Each one of these statements continue to affirm that one big truth that we have, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And so he and he alone is our source of authority. Jesus is the Christ, the Lamb given to the slaughter. Jesus is the one who would suffer for us and die in our place that we may be healed. He suffered for us. And it is through Jesus and his name and his name alone that we can be saved through repentance and saving faith. Why? Because he is the anointed one. He is the Christ. And so there's some big ideas that help us unpack and help us explain that big truth within the context of our family. And finally, in every family discipleship plan every week, there's a Bible story. A Bible story. A simple narrative from Scripture that we get to see this big truth lived out in the life of an individual or a group of individuals. We get to see its practical implications in the pages of Scripture that helps illustrate the big truth and capture practical application. And so for us this morning, our Bible story is in the first 11 verses of chapter 3. We're going to see Jesus, through Peter, heal a lame man who has not walked for 40 plus years. And we're going to be able to read that story and clearly see the authority of Jesus the anointed one, Jesus the Christ. And so I want you to see that's it. That's how simple it can be to start and to begin to engage in just a weekly conversation, a weekly holding up of a biblical truth, a weekly discipleship of our kids, whether they're five or whether they're 15. We can begin to engage in that. And so this pursuit of the family discipleship plan, it's changing lives. It's not just people here in our church. Do you understand churches And other people outside of Tri-Cities are beginning to use our family discipleship plan. Just this last week, we got a call from Japan uh, from an association leader wanting to know if they could begin to translate the family discipleship plan into Japanese. That's the third country that's reached out to us to pursue this. It's an incredible thing to see what can happen when the church, collectively us, comes alongside of each other and begins to engage that most powerful institution that is the home and the family. And so my hope for us is that we together will just keep pursuing, keep encouraging, keep holding up. This is a simple place to start to have some conversations, to be diligent in discipling our children. But this morning I want to dig in. I want us to get a little bit more depth. And so we're going to continue to walk through Acts chapter 3. Begin reading with me in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. The ninth hour, 
And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is, the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from him. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. Let's pause there for just a minute. Up to this point, as we've been studying through Acts, man, things have been going really well for the church. I mean, it's an exciting time. They've lost Jesus, but as Jesus has ascended into heaven and he's mobilizing his church, the Holy Spirit is falling on people, people are radically being transformed, lives are being changed, miracles are happening. I mean, it's an incredible time. There's very little persecution at this time. I mean, life is good, it's just exciting, it's like woohoo, kind of a moment. And they've been living in that moment. But things are about to change. And if you wonder, why of all the miracles does this guy find his way into the book of Acts? It's because this guy is the spark that is going to change the climate of the church. He's going to change the climate of the setting around the church, and he will be the spark that will bring the persecution, that will mobilize the church out of Jerusalem to the ends of the world. This guy, this lame guy right here. Chapter 3, we see him, this kind of blip on the radar, spark persecution. By chapter 4, that persecution will lead to arrest and threats. Chapter 5, we're going to turn the page. We're going to see the Holy Spirit kill Ananias and his wife Sapphira for lying. We're going to see more people arrested and threatened. By chapter 6, we're going to see disunity creep into the church. They're going to begin to argue and fuss with one another. We're going to see Stephen, a deacon, arrested. In chapter 7, we're going to see Stephen stoned, martyred, killed for his faith. Things are changing. I want to pause here and I just want to give you just a kind of a free thought. Listen, God's movement doesn't always mandate positive reviews from those around us. Man's response is not often a good indicator of faithfulness. Sometimes we use a lot of Christian lingo to kind of get at that. This week I was gaining wisdom from the great David Brewer's Twitter feed. I recommend it for you guys. You should check out uh, Brewer's Twitter feed. He reminded me of this thought. Listen, he's talking about Christians. He says, God, we often say God is up to a great work. And when we say this, it's often Christian code for God is behaving like I want him to. This faithful church is about to find themselves in a bunch of messes. It's going to get messy, it's going to get hard, they're going to be oppressed and persecuted, but they do not lose faithfulness. We need to remember that. And so this lame man, who's been lame for 40 plus years, we know that from Acts chapter 4 verse 22, he's been unable to walk for 40 plus years, is picked up by some friends or some family, and he's carried every day 
to a gate, a narrow gate that leads into the temple so that he can be laid there, like right in the way, right in the gate, so that he can beg for alms. Alms is just a word that means money. It's charitable money. It's that you see someone, you have compassion on them, and you would give them charity. And he's going to sit there and he's going to beg. People are going to walk past him every day. That's why he's there. It's advantageous to his purpose. I normally don't share the speculative thoughts I have in my meditations when I study, especially when I preach, because I think it's a bad habit. I want to make sure we know the difference between the absolute revelation of God's Word and just what could be. And most of the time, if what could be was that important, I feel like it would be in Scripture itself. But I want to share a speculative thought I had with you. As I began to read through this, it began to dawn on me, this guy's been doing this for a long time. There's a really good chance Jesus has walked by this man. I mean, a really good chance. We're going to find out in just a minute, all the people knew who he was. Because he'd been there every day begging. Now, I don't know, maybe Jesus never walked by him in his years of going to the temple. Maybe he did many times. I, I really don't know. But my guess is if I'm a lame man, and I've been lame for 40 years, and I hear the testimony of Jesus, who is healing the blind, who is making lepers clean, I want to meet that guy. Like, I want to know about him. And if my place is right there at the temple, man, I think it's highly possible that Jesus walked by this lame man who could not walk, who was suffering many times and did not heal him. Think about that. Jesus didn't heal everybody he walked past. If you're that guy, do you begin to think, Jesus just keeps walking by me. I'm suffering, and he keeps walking by me by me church listen I think there's some people like that here and if you're honest you're faithful you're pursuing but you hurt because you feel like in your suffering you pray you seek the Lord you're, and you feel like he's just walking by you and often walking by you to do a great work in someone else's life Perhaps you're the person who's single and you are praying and longing for a spouse. And you try to get excited every time one of your friends gets married and one of your friends finds someone to spend the rest of their life with. But inside, it just feels like another time Jesus walked right by you to somebody else. Some of you long for a child. And you and your spouse have been praying and praying and all you've gotten is miscarriage after miscarriage. And you want to be excited and you force yourself to be excited for those other families that you know and you cherish that are having their third, their fourth, their fifth child. But inside it feels like Jesus just keeps walking by you. Church, listen. We have to trust in the sovereignty of God. 
We have to acknowledge that his ways are beyond our ways, that his thoughts are beyond our thoughts, that he has eyes to see the world outside of time and outside of our limitation that are completely different than our eyes, and that he loves us more than we can comprehend, and that he has a plan for his children to give him glory and honor and something that is of eternal worth and eternal value beyond the circumstances of our day, beyond, listen, even our suffering. It reminds me in John chapter 9 of the men who came to Jesus and said, this blind man over here, he's been blind since he was born. Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus responded back in verse 3 of chapter 9, and he says, this happened so that the works of God might be displayed on him. In other words, he's been blind since birth, for this moment, because in this moment, the Son of God, the Christ, the Anointed One, is going to reveal His authority to mankind, and He's going to make a blind man from birth be able to see. For this moment, a lifetime of suffering, so that for thousands of years, people will know a blind man who is radically changed by the authority of the Christ. Working our suffering to something that is eternal, something that is valuable. Jesus is the Christ. And so Peter says to the lame man, verse 6, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood. And he began to walk. And entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him. Because he's the one day after day, begging at that gate in the temple. They recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Our big truth Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. And so in this moment, Peter is able to heal. Why? Because Jesus is the one sent to heal. So what begins to happen next is just pretty basic. There's a gathering of people. All these people have gathered around. They're all there. And they are really curious. I mean, what? What is going on? I've seen this dude for 40 plus years. He's leaping. I mean, he's not just up like, this guy's like jumping up and down. This is incredible. What's going on? So Peter recognizes it's time to preach. By the way, don't think of that just as instruction to the preachers of the world. That's instruction for us. We're going to have opportunities where our friends are going to be wild, astounded. They're going to wonder, seize the wonder, and proclaim 
the Christ. And so Peter, seeing the wonder, he begins to preach. And as he preaches, we're going to see our big ideas played out here in chapter 3. The first one, Jesus is our source of authority. We begin reading in verse 12. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. All these people gather around. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. That's a great line that Peter says. Listen, Peter goes, we didn't do this by our own power, our own competency, our own ability. That's power, right? We didn't do this ourselves. Also check this one, because he says, we didn't do it because we were super spiritual. Sometimes I think if we think if we're just super spiritual, then we can do all these kinds of things. As if our super spiritualness, that's a good word too, our super spiritualness can somehow lead to authority. Our authority is in Christ Jesus alone. And so Peter acknowledges, this is by no means connected to me or my power. Verse 13, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. It's because of him. It's him. He's the anointed one. He's the Christ. Listen to where Peter goes next. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when he had decided to release him, you were the ones who delivered him over. You were the ones who denied him. Verse 14, But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, the name of Jesus the Christ, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. In the presence of you all. Peter's sermon essentially just asks, answers three questions. The first one, these people have gathered around, and it, it's a pretty basic question. Like, how did you guys do that? That was pretty, that, that's a good trick. I want to know how you did that. How did you do that? And Peter's pretty quick to say, well, I didn't. <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't. Jesus did that. The anointed one did that. He's the authority, not, not me. I also want you to recognize as we preach through Acts, this is a bit of a rabbit, I just want to chase it. As we go through Acts, you're going to be able to hear lots of sermons. And as you hear these sermons preached, I want you to notice a difference in them than what is often the tone of our teaching and discipleship in the cultural day that we live in. Peter here and the sermons in the New Testament are direct. They are confrontational. And they deal with specific sin. Again and again. They call for repentance. 
They are loving and loving in truth, not in passivity. Peter says, you delivered them. He says, you denied them. Peter says, you killed them. It's pretty strong, especially since some of those people probably aren't even there. You know what, I, I identify with Peter's tension here. I don't know if you've thought about this, but these people can be like, really, really? We denied them, Peter? Where were you at? You ever think about that? You ever think how hard it is to proclaim truth when you yourself rejected the truth? If there's anybody who has an excuse, it's like, look, I can't really say that. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, that's not what I did. John, why don't you take over? It's not an excuse. Because the mission is to proclaim the truth of who God is and the truth of who we are in light of him. And so Peter had to even overcome his own insecurity, I assure you, to proclaim the truth that we have all denied Jesus. That we have all sent him to his death. That it's our sin that hung him on the cross. The second big idea that we see is that Jesus suffered to be our Savior. Verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. You didn't even understand all that was happening. I know you didn't get it. I know you didn't know he was the Christ as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he, Jesus, thus fulfilled. So here's the second question that's being answered. If Jesus really is the Christ, why is he suffering? Why did he die? See, they expected the Christ to be a conquering king, a ruler, to come take over the world and bless them with provision. Jesus suffered. Peter reminds them of prophecies like those in Isaiah 53. Those prophecies that acknowledge that Jesus is the Lamb of God sent to suffer, to die. That his suffering did not disqualify him. His suffering was not a sign of weakness in him. That Rather, his suffering fulfilled the promise of the anointed one. It qualified him. Jesus is our suffering Savior, and that makes him the Christ. It does not disqualify him. The third big idea we see is that Jesus gives healing through saving faith and repentance. In verse 19, Peter proclaiming Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the healer, says repent, turn, turn, turn from your sin, turn from your rejection of Jesus as the Son of God, as the Christ, as the promised one, the anointed one, the King. Turn from your sin and turn to him. He says, repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, 
whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words, Jesus has been called back to heaven. He's waiting for the appropriate time for his kingdom to be fully revealed. This isn't new, Peter says. This has always been part of the promise. This has always been the path of the anointed one. It doesn't disqualify him that he's not here right now. He is resting in the sovereignty of the Father. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, to the Christ, shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, the days they're living in. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant that God made with your fathers saying to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God having raised up his servant sent him to you first. They were the first. They're the first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. That third question that Peter answers, if Jesus really is the Messiah, if he really is the Christ, the anointed one, well, where's his kingdom and where's our blessing? Well, his kingdom is present and waiting for the appropriate time to be fully revealed, as is promised throughout the Old Testament, throughout the prophets. But his blessing that you want, listen, the blessing isn't some stuff you get. The blessing is him. Jesus is the blessing. The blessing is Him. The blessing is the anointed one. The promised one. The King that can reign is here. And you have access to Him. That is your blessing. That Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one who has suffered in our place, offers healing and reconciliation. He offers a relationship with Him. And He's here now. And through repentance and saving faith, you can rest in Him. You can be blessed. In Him, you can become joint heirs in the family of God through Him. So, every family discipleship plan also has something called the big aims. They're like the objectives, they're the goals. Those big aims help direct our heart, our soul, our strength to apply the big truth that particular week. They're held up in four aspects of being doers of the word that we would know that we would feel that we would do and that we would want that we would know certain things to be true 
that we would set our emotion to feel certain things that are true, that we would do and carry out certain actions of truth, and that we would want, that we would desire and long to live out certain truth. And so this morning as the band comes up, we're going to close by holding up some practical applications as a church, how we can be doers of the word, recognizing that Jesus is the Christ. The first thing I want us to do is I want us to know, listen, if you're in this room, know that Jesus is the anointed one, the suffering Savior sent to heal. Let me say it again. Jesus is the anointed one, the promised one, the one who is sent to heal. Jesus is the Christ pray that all of us know that second I would want you to feel feel wonder and hope due to the authority of Jesus listen our emotions are broken and they're all over the place you may be sitting here this morning and you may be distracted you may think this is the most boring sermon you've ever heard and my delivery has you like snoozing you may be distracted by great suffering in your life there may be all kinds of things swirling around but listen you should feel wonder and awe beyond your circumstance the authority of Jesus that can conquer your sin, that can heal you from your brokenness, that can take a blind man and make him see, that can take a lame man and can make him walk, you ought to be in awe of him. And even if you don't naturally feel like it, we ought to fight to make ourselves feel it. pray that this morning an application would you would be able to fight for the emotion for the awe for the wonder of the authority that is wrapped up in the son of god the christ jesus third as we do listen repent of your sin and live in the faith that jesus is the christ Perhaps you're here and there's never been a time in your life where you recognize you were broken, sinful, and in need of a Savior. And there's never been a time in your life that you proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is my suffering Savior that took my death, my punishment, my cross upon Himself so that through faith in Him, by His authority and His power, the old self in me might die and I might be born again new in Him. If you've never prayed to accept Jesus as your Savior and proclaim Him as the Christ, it will change your life. And I pray that you would do that this morning. And for those of us who have made that decision, my prayer of application and doing for us is that we would live out our faith in Jesus. That we would live out our faith in the authority that he has as the Christ. Lastly, I would challenge you to want. You say, what, what, what do we want in this? Listen, to share the blessing 
Remember, they're waiting for the blessing. To share the blessing of Jesus with all families of the earth. Whether that's your neighbor or that's somebody on the other side of the world and in far nation. That we would be so compelled by the blessing and the love of God through Jesus that we cannot help but to speak it to those we see and hear. That's what's going to happen in Acts chapter 4. You're going to get there and they're going to be arrested and they're going to be threatened. And you know what they're going to say? I can't help it. The blessing of the Christ in my life is too much. i got to tell people, you're going to have to kill me to stop me. I pray that for our church. So at this time, we're going to sing a song of response. I'm going to ask you to pray and to meditate through these applications. If you want to talk about it, I'll be down front. I'd love to talk with you. Church, Jesus is the Christ. And that changes everything. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth it proclaims. Father, I pray that as we stand and as we sing in just a moment, Lord, that I pray that you will capture our minds, that you will capture our hearts, and that there would not be a soul in this room that would not be convicted, encouraged, challenged by your word, by the big truth this week. That Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one who suffered for us. Lord, do a work in us that we would not only be hearers of the word this morning, but that we would be doers. Father, I pray these things in the name of your Son, the name of the anointed one, the name of the one who is promised, the name of our King, the name of our Savior, the name of Jesus our Christ. Amen.